0: The Library of Congress just launched a new crowdsourcing campaign, the goal to expand access to unreleased law library documents dating back to the World War II era. For what it's all about, we turn to the director of the Law Library editorial and publishing office, Luis Acosta. Mr. Acosta, good to have you on.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: And Law Library senior legal information specialist, Stephen Mayu. Mr. Mayu, good to have you on.
2: Morning. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So let's begin with the context here. Uh, Mr. Acosta, what are the types of documents and extent of the documents that are involved in this campaign?
1: Well, so just by way of background, the Law Library of Congress has for really over a century now been doing reports on foreign law for Congress and for other you know, federal agencies sometimes as well. They're somewhat similar to the reports that our more well-known sister agency, the Congressional Research Service, does. But when if a question from Congress comes into the Library of Congress that's about foreign law, the folks in the Law Library's Foreign Law Division, which is called the Global Legal Research Directorate, will be assigned to respond. And that's just sort of a historical, just the result of a how things developed, the foreign law specialists are at the law library because they handle collections responsibilities as well as research responsibilities. So foreign law questions come to the Law Library of Congress. We've been doing these for, like I said, over a century, but uh, it really picked up around the post-World War II era. And now we're now digitizing these
0: Got it. So, Stephen, in other words, these are not available widely. They're all in paper, so you're digitizing them. Then uh, tell us what the issue there is that you need a crowdsourcing campaign for.
2: Sure. As Luis said, we've been writing these reports for decades now. And in fact, many of them have already been added to the collection. But since about 2018, we started a project to inventory many of these historical paper reports that were not formerly part of the collection as well as a few that were, but we thought would benefit from digitization. But many of these reports have been digitized from thin carbon copies, kind of like onion skin paper. And in some cases, these represent the only known remaining versions of the reports. So although they're still pretty legible to the human eye, the poor print quality makes their digitized characters difficult for optical character recognition or or OCR. And that's why we enlisted the help of volunteers for this particular campaign.
0: And so you don't want to post just images of the fuzzy pages. You want to have the actual text available.
2: Exactly. Our goal is to have a fully searchable and accessible collection of these historical reports.
0: And what will the volunteers do then precisely?
2: Well, if you're familiar with the platform, this is the By the People crowdsourcing platform. And I invite anyone listening to go to crowd.loc.gov. You would see an image on your left screen of the digitized report. And then on the right side of your screen, you'll have a transcription window. And we are asking volunteers to type what they see. And in fact, in this particular campaign, we have been successful enough to have an initial transcription of nearly all of the pages. I think all but maybe 10 or so pages have received an initial transcription. So what we need now are reviewers who are willing to go in and look at the transcription and confirm its accuracy and accept it. And at that point, it becomes added to the library's permanent collections.
0: Got it. We're speaking with Stephen Mayu. He's Senior Legal Information Specialist and with Louise Acosta, Director of the Law Library Editorial and Publishing Office. They are both with the Library of Congress. And do people that do this comparison need to simply be good readers or do they have to have some knowledge of law, for example?
2: Thank you for asking that. They do not need to have any knowledge of law. Anyone who is able to read the content In the image is welcome to participate. In fact, there are magnifying tools where you can zoom in and out. So we hope that many of these characters are easy enough to read. And in fact, we're looking for readers of languages for a small selection of these reports, which are foreign language translations of the U.S. Constitution. So if you're a speaker of Armenian, Chinese, or Russian, Korean, uh, even maybe Hungarian, We are looking for those who can help us review those particular documents as well.
0: And, Louise, from a content standpoint, I'm looking at a couple of pages here that have just at random having to do with visas for travel to Burma, I guess for a Burma shave. In 1966 – I'm dating myself, sorry (laughs) – and there are scribblings in some of the margins – there is a recurring footnote at the bottom of each page. I mean, this is when typists were really typists, when these were created way before computer-generated text. Is there any significance into what might be in some of the handwritten notes, or, and the footnote can be reproduced just on the first page? And I mean, how does the, the formatting affect the content, and does the formatting need to somehow get moved forward in this effort?
2: As I said earlier, in some cases, these are the only remaining copies of the report. So it's possible that maybe this 1966 report was published in another format, but the one that we have, the one remaining copy may have handwritten notes, and we invite volunteers to transcribe those in brackets as marginalia. So that will become
1: part of the transcription of the report.
0: Got it. And Luis?
1: One never knows what a researcher who happens to be researching, you know, the situation in Burma in 1966 might find of interest. So it's too much for someone developing a collection to assume what future researchers might find interesting for one reason or another. So even such marginalia conceivably could be of interest.
0: Yeah, so that can get somehow move forward into the digital age, even the margin notes. Exactly. And what about the situation, say, continuing with the Burma example? It's now called Myanmar. And is there some way for someone to, if they're interested in Myanmar, to be directed toward a document referring to Burma?
2: I can answer that, I think. Uh, As far as I understand, this particular report uh, should have a catalog record. Another thing worth mentioning about this project is that it's a collaboration between us and GPO. Uh, the U.S. Government Publishing Office receives these records and they provide full bibliographic records. So they would have applied a subject term to the record for this particular report, which would link Burma and and Myanmar. So uh, a researcher would, by accessing the, the bibliographic record, be able to find uh, other reports. All right.
0: Myanmar. So let's uh, zoom out here again. You've got this interesting thousands of documents of collections that are going to be verified and some degree still to be transcribed but mostly verified to whom might this collection be of interest do you think in the future
2: i think that this project presents the opportunity to engage new audiences with the works that have been written by the law library over many decades i think our hope is is that it would expand digital access not only for legal historians but also policymakers scholars, foreign legal specialists who currently refer to, to contemporary law library reports, but also students of history and uh, public policy, government, or international relations, as well as just the general uh, interested members of the public.
0: And Luis, what is fascinating to you about this publication and this collection that might be interesting to the general public out there?
1: Well, as as Stephen mentioned, I, I think this would be of interest to historians, uh, political scientists, also people who are interested in the history of the federal government, and indeed the history of the Library of Congress, (laughs) Uh, anyone interested in the history of international relations, what the U.S. government was interested in during the time period in question, you know, historians of the Cold War, any number of historians and scholars might find these materials of interest.
0: All right. Luis Acosta is director of the Law Library Editorial and Publishing Office at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Stephen Mayu is senior legal information specialist at the library. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. We'll post this interview along with a link to how you can help at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
3: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
4: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America
3: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of Wepa. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
4: Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com/podcast1 to learn
2: more and start your free trial.